Good morning. It is a pleasure to see you this morning. Can you turn me down just a little bit? I feel like I'm a little bit loud. Thank you. Awesome. It is a pleasure to see you this morning. My name is Jason Averill. I am the assistant pastor here at Grace. And, you know, it is wonderful to welcome you here on that most sacred of holidays, you know, time change weekend where we get to sleep in an extra hour. Isn't that just the greatest day? I was, you know, slightly tongue-in-cheek earlier in the new members class. I was suggesting that maybe, maybe we should actually just change it and instead of doing fall back and spring forward, maybe we should just do fall back and spring back. So that every six months or so, we get an extra hour to sleep in. I think that'd be great. Hey, I got an amen. That's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, as you might know, we have been in a series called Who is Jesus? And we've been going through Matthew, kind of exploring that question. Who is our Savior? And... We've made a pretty good pace at it, but last week we were in Matthew chapter 17, and that was the transfiguration. This week we've actually skipped ahead by 10 chapters, but don't worry, that's, that's actually not all that much time. Chapter 21, we, we get the triumphal entry, and then 27, we get to the crucifixion. Next week we'll actually be doing the resurrection, and then we're going to finish it up on the 20th with uh, a look at Jesus as he returns. So let's pray, and then we can dive in. Father, we thank you, Lord, for calling us here to worship, for creating us as your people, electing us before the, before the foundation of the world and calling us here all so that we might worship you. Lord, we praise you for that. We praise you that uh, you are that great, that merciful, that amazing. Lord, we do ask, we do ask that uh, you make us attentive today. And Lord, we ask that you send the, the Holy Spirit to unveil you before our eyes and illumine our minds to the glorious presence of our Savior. Amen. So like I said, we have stepped forward in the story about 10 chapters. And what's happened so far, like I said last week, we had the transfiguration. And uh, we saw Jesus on the mount being transformed in front of the disciples. And they see his glory in a way that they've never seen it before. And then they come off the mountain. And Jesus goes and he spends about another year teaching, going around uh, the... <clears throat> Going, sorry, going around uh, Samaria and Galilee, and he's teaching, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, my voice is better, but I still have a little bit of a hoarseness. And then in chapter 21, we get to the triumphal entry, and Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he's greeted by the crowds, and they are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And then in chapter 26, we see the Last Supper, and then he's betrayed, and he's arrested by the Jews, and then he's sent before Pilate. And that's where we enter into the gospel story again, right here, right here at the crescendo 
of the crucifixion. It's both the highest and the lowest point of the Gospel of Matthew. It's what everything has been driving toward. And right here, we're faced again with that question that we've been asking every week. Who is Jesus? Who is our Savior? So let's read our passage today. If you want to turn to it, it comes from Matthew chapter 27, verse 32 through 54. Please stand as we read God's word. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see what Eli <clears throat> whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were also were, also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Thus far, the reading of God's word. All men are like grass. All their glories are like the flowers of the field grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's word stands forever. Let's turn our attention to it. You may be seated. Like I said, this is the crescendo of Matthew. It's both its highest point and its lowest point. And there's so much to say about this passage. So much to say. You know, it would take me hours and hours if I were to preach everything that I wanted to. But I do promise 
to be sensitive to your time. I won't keep you past about two. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed at that. <laughs> that was important. So we're actually going to be looking at three things from this passage. We're going to be looking at the taunts of the people, the turning of the father, and the triumph of the son. And those three things, in those three things, we'll actually see the answer to that question, who is Jesus? So the taunts of the people, the turning of the father, and the triumph of the son. So how do the taunts of the people speak to who Jesus is? Well, there are four groups of people here in the text. You know, there's the soldiers, there's the passers-by, there's the chief priests, and the thieves. And the soldiers, you know, they come along first, and so we'll address them first. We'll just go in order. You know, they had already uh, mocked him. They had scourged him. They had beaten him. They took a crown of thorns, and they shoved it down over his head. And then, in verse 37, they see the mocking charge. We see the mocking charge that they put there. And over his head... Matthew says, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. And this was a taunt to him. It was a taunt because they're saying, a king? A king? Really? You have no power. In fact, we've crucified you. You know, you're obviously a pretender. You are a king of nothing. And you're about to die. And it was also a warning to others, any other pretenders that might come along. It was a warning to them not to follow after Jesus' footsteps. Don't say that you're a king. Now, that's kind of a short and simple taunt, but it is profound. It's profound because at the same time that they're using it as a taunt, it's actually true. He is the king of the Jews. And they are unwittingly putting forth this charge against him. And that charge is truth. That he is the king. He is the anointed one. He is the coming savior. They don't know it. But that is what they are accusing him of. Now the passers-by, you know, when he came into Jerusalem just five days ago, what happened? He comes in riding on a donkey. And the streets are thronged with people. And they're all shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! Hosanna to the Son of David! And when people ask the crowds who Jesus is, who they're shouting Hosanna to, they say, he's a prophet, a great prophet. They celebrate him. And yet, now, we read in verse 39 and 40, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now, their first taunt is that he said he was going to destroy the temple. That's not actually what Jesus said. Jesus actually said, if you destroy this temple, meaning his body, that he would raise it up in three days. So they're telling a lie about him to taunt him and a truth as well. 
because they're pointing out the fact that he will indeed raise to life in three days. That's what he claimed. They're proving themselves to be liars, and they're proving him to be truthful, all in their accusations. And then they followed up by saying, if you are the son of God, come down. It's implied, of course, that he cannot, and that is also true. He can't. Now, he had the ability. He actually said that to Pilate. He said, you know, if my kingdom was of this world, my, <clears throat> my people would defend me. You wouldn't be able to touch me. He has the power to come down from the cross, but he cannot come down from the cross. Why can't he come? Why does he have to stay up there? He has to stay up there for one reason, because his mission isn't complete. He still has to save his people from his sins, from their sins. And so, again, their taunt is true. He cannot allow himself to come down from the cross. Then the chief priests step in. You know, the chief priests, they had arrested him. And during the trial, they spit on him. They beat him. They slapped him. They taunted him at the trial. And as they beat him, they'd say, if you're a prophet, prophesy. Prophesy. Tell us who hit you. They had already done all of their mocking. And yet that's not enough. And so they come to the cross to actually see what they think as justice done. And we see in verse 42 their words. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Again, it's true. They had gone around and they had seen Jesus heal many, many people. They had seen the effects of him raising Lazarus from the dead. He had saved many, many people. And they say he cannot save himself, and that's true. He could, but he can't. Their next charge, their next taunt. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. That's just a bald-faced lie. We know that that's a lie because he actually did come down from the cross after the crucifixion, and he was dead. And so he came down from the cross, and he was buried, and then he was raised three days later. And what happens? Did all of the chief priests come and flock to him and say, Sorry, we believe in you now. No. No, they didn't. It's a bald-faced lie. And yet, they do call him the king of Israel, which is true. Following after the soldiers. And of course, they end it with this very, very strange taunt. He trusts in God. As if that's something to deride. He trusts in God. No. And then... To increase the shame, he's actually crucified with thieves on either side. And in Matthew, we see that even the thieves leveled taunts and accusations, following after everybody else. The thieves were actually guilty of their crime. The thieves were actually deserving justice. 
and yet they mock him anyway. Who are you? I'm really, really glad that we actually have that picture in Luke where we see one of the thieves uh, being touched by God and his heart revived and he comes to understand who Jesus is and he repents. It's an awesome story. Matthew doesn't choose to put it in here. We're just left with the taunts from the thieves. Now all of these taunts reveal something about who Jesus is. They say that he is the king of Israel, he's the king of the Jews, he's the son of God. He is the true temple, who though it is torn down will raise up in three days. He is the savior of sinners who cannot save himself. And yet, as, as bad as all of this was, as bad as the physical suffering that he was going through on the cross, as bad as the emotional suffering and the ignominy of <clears throat> all of the taunts, he never cries out. He never cries out in his defense. He never cries out in pain that we're, that we're told. He never cries out in despair. No, it's only as he enters the spiritual suffering that he cries out. Looking back at verse 45 again. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? darkness at the sixth hour sets in. Now, as just a little bit of an aside, you know, some people, when they read about this darkness, when they hear about it, they can't explain it. They don't, they don't really know what it is. They know that it can't be an eclipse, one, because eclipses don't last for three hours. You know, I took my family to see the one that was just a, a few years back, and we went to Missouri, and it was amazing and awesome, and it's well worth a road trip. There's another one coming in 2024. Go to Dallas, you can see it. It'll be awesome. But it was only dark for about three minutes, not three hours. It was only dim for about 30 minutes, not three hours. And then couple this with the fact that this is happening at the Passover, and the Passover always happens at a full moon. And in a full moon, you can't actually have a solar eclipse. It, you have to have a new moon. So it couldn't be an eclipse. And so people come to this, and they can't explain it, and they don't, they don't know what it is. And so many of them try to, to spiritualize it. And they say that, you know, this wasn't a literal darkness. It was a, it was a spiritual darkness. Now, there is a theological meaning, a spiritual meaning to the darkness for sure. But the fact is, we're running right up against history whenever we claim that there's not an actual event of physical darkness. Because there are historians. There are three historians in the ancient world that were writing just shortly after this. And they, <clears throat> all three of those, record the darkness. And they actually say that it lasted for three hours and that it was dark enough that you could see the stars. No. This was a real darkness. A real darkness with a theological meaning. So what's the meaning of the darkness? 
Well, we often think that the darkness settles in on the land because of the tragedy of killing the Son of God. And there actually probably is something to that, that that's part of the meaning, that it is a, a dark day. In fact, we get in Amos this prophecy that the darkness will come. I marked it, but with a different tab. That's in Amos chapter 8, and starting in verse 9, the Lord says, On that day the Lord declares, I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. And so there's this prophecy about Jesus' crucifixion and the darkness that's going to settle in. And we do get that hint of that it, it is a time of mourning for the death of the Son of God. And yet, that's only part of the meaning. And I would actually argue probably not the main part. And it's not the main part because of what happens right after. We see the darkness settle in on the land. And then we see judgment and wrath come upon the sun. And this darkness that settles in is a sign of that judgment and wrath. You see right here, we have this great exchange that's taking place. It's all of our sin being put upon Jesus and all of his righteousness being credited to our account. That's happening right here. And the sky is darkening because God is about to pour out his wrath for our sin upon Jesus. And we see that in verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son has enjoyed the presence of the Father. He's enjoyed the presence of the Father from time immemorial. He's been face to face. That's what the Apostle John says. Face to face with the Lord. Feeling the Lord's smile. Feeling the Father's smile. And the Father's feeling the smile of the Son. And that has been his existence even when he becomes incarnate. And he's born as a baby. All of his life. All of his life. He feels the presence of the Father. And feels the Father's smile. But now... He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he experiences hell. He experiences the lack of the Father's smile and the turning of the Father toward him and wrath. As the Father brings down his wrath upon Jesus, it causes Jesus to cry out. We call this the cry of dereliction. Dereliction is a big fancy word for abandonment. It's the cry of Jesus being abandoned on the cross by the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting that Jesus cries that out. He's actually quoting a psalm here, Psalm 22. But we also know that he knew exactly why God was abandoning him. But this was an emotional cry. 
because he felt it. He felt it for the first time. The lack of God's presence. Jesus knew that he was abandoned by the Father all so that we would not be abandoned. He was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. And that's why he cries out. And that's his first time that he cries out. When he actually feels the weight of God's wrath. But it's not the last time that he cries out. No. That was the cry of dereliction. But he does cry out one more time if we look at verse 50. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, of course, Matthew doesn't really go into what the cry is. All we see in Matthew is that Jesus receives a drink of wine from a sponge. Probably his throat was parched, and he receives that drink of wine to soothe his throat. I'm kind of feeling a little bit of that small now. Again, thank you for laughing. And then after his throat is soothed, he cries out again. And Luke and John actually come in here, and when they're talking about the crucifixion, they fill in the gaps for us. And in John, we hear that this last cry is, it is finished. And then Luke adds, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His final cry from the cross was a cry of triumph. The cry of dereliction He's not even referring to God as his father, but he is referring to God as God. He recognizes that God the Father is still his Lord. And yet here, right at the end, in the ninth hour, right before he yields up his spirit, he has this cry of triumph. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts this. You know, when they approach the crucifixion and they get right here and Jesus cries out, it is finished. The narrator of the storybook Bible says, and it was. He had done it. What had he done? What did he do? It's that promise that we've talked about all series long. That one all the way back from Genesis 3.15. That's the first gospel that ever came to mankind. Man sins and falls from grace. And during the pronouncement of the curse upon the snake, God gives the first good news. And the good news is that somebody is coming to put the snake to death. Somebody is coming to crush the head of the serpent. That it wasn't always going to be this way. And that promise that God made in Genesis 3.15 has finally and forever been fulfilled. Jesus has dealt the death blow to Satan right here. That's why he cries out in triumph. He has forever and always made true atonement for our sin. And then the text mentions that after that cry, he yields up his spirit. He made sure that his mission was complete. You know, there's this line way back at the beginning where they offer him wine mixed with myrrh and he doesn't take it why doesn't he take it it's a question that a lot of theologians ask and you know they they come to this conclusion that 
it was probably meant to be a little bit of a sedative. It may have been an outright poison. They don't know. But it was probably meant to be a little bit of a sedative. But no. He was experiencing the suffering of the cross. He was completing his mission with a clear head. And he had done it. And as wonderful as that is, as wonderful as that is, the text actually goes on. Verse 51, we see, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of to the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, and they said, truly, truly, this was the Son of God. And so Jesus cries out, and he yields up his spirit. He dies the atoning death on the cross. And all of a sudden, there's an earthquake. And this earthquake is powerful. In fact, if you look at what Josephus records about this earthquake, it's, it's nice that he does record it, but when the earthquake happened, it not only shook open the tombs, but it broke the lintel in the Holy of Holies. You know what the lintel is? That's that stone above uh, the walls that keeps the wall intact, and that broke. And it's what they would have attached the curtain to. And that earthquake broke that stone, and that stone ripped that curtain in two. Now, why is that important? Well, throughout all of the Bible, we actually have set up in the temple and in the tabernacle two separate areas. Well, three, actually. We'll, we'll say three. We have... You know, the temple grounds, and then we have the Holy of Holies, and then we have the Holiest of Holies. And the Holiest of Holies was where the high priest would go once a year, and he would make atonement for the sins of the people. And he was only allowed to go in there once a year, and in fact, we were told that he had to have a rope tied to him in case he died while he was in there, in case he incurred God's wrath. They had to be able to drag him out because nobody could follow him in. And that curtain that separated the daily worship of God from the place where the atonement was made, where God's presence was, it was torn in two. And as we saw, as we saw in our assurance of pardon, that was an actual curtain that was torn. And yet it was prefiguring something deeper. That that curtain... And the tear in the curtain was the tear in Jesus' flesh, paving the way for us to go into the Holy of Holies. And the tombs were opened and the saints were raised. There's a little bit of confusion on the timing here. We're told elsewhere in the Bible that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. So more than likely, the tombs were opened. And then at the resurrection, as Jesus comes back to life, so do the saints that are in those tombs. And as he goes out to minister to the disciples, they go out and they're seen 
and witnessed by many people in the city because he is the firstborn from the dead. And it is impossible that he would be raised from the dead, shattering death, without it spilling over. And then finally we have the centurion's profession. Now, people are on the fence as to whether or not he was actually saved. I, I'm an optimist. I hope we see him in heaven. I choose to believe that he probably was saved because it makes sense why Matthew would put it in here. Because we have a Gentile who is right there at the cross who has witnessed the earthquake. He's witnessed the darkening of the world He's witnessed Jesus crying out, it is finished, and then instantly yielding up his spirit and dying. And he witnesses that, and he sees it, and as a Gentile, unprepared for all of this, he believes. And the Jewish people largely don't. Now, the cross, like I said, it's the worst day in history in some respects, and it's the lowest point of Matthew in some respects, but it's also the best day in history, or at least one of them. It's hard to peg the best day or the worst day because, you know, you have a lot to choose from. You have, you know, the cross. You also have the resurrection. You have creation. All of those are great days. Worst days, you have the fall and the cross. But... Simultaneously, this is the best and the worst. And at first blush, when we look at this kind of naively without knowing the rest of the Bible, it might seem like Satan has won. You know, way back in chapter 4 when he tempted Jesus, he tried to deceive him. That was his first move as he tempted Jesus. He tried to pull the wool over Jesus' eyes and Jesus wouldn't fall for it. And so when that didn't work, he tried to bribe Jesus and said that he would give him the entire world if Jesus would just bow down and worship him. And Jesus, as the new Adam, would not fall like the old Adam. No. No. In the end, he actually tried to crush Jesus. He invaded Judas and incited Judas to go ahead and betray him. And he was at work in all of the Pharisees and the Jews and the high priests and the chief priests. Bringing him to this point of crucifixion. And it seems like he won. He tried to crush Jesus. And yet, as he struck, he only hit Jesus' heel. And Jesus crushed his head. Dealing that death blow. Both the best and the worst day. So what does this mean for us? What does all this mean? It means that if you're Christ, you have experienced that great exchange. You have experienced that true atonement. All of your sin, all of it, has once and for all and forever been put upon Jesus. And he has suffered the wrath of God on your behalf. And you need not fear God's wrath anymore. Because he cried out, it is finished. And that means everything that you ever have done, 
every sin you ever will commit, it is all covered by the blood of Jesus. In Paul, you know, going back to this image of the centurions, putting that charge above Jesus' head, you know, they would make a little plaque, and any criminal, not any criminal, but most criminals, they would take that plaque and they would nail it above the person's head just to say what they're charged with. And for Jesus, it's that he was the king of the Jews. And Paul says that all of our sins have been taken from us and they have been nailed to the cross. All of the charges that the law might make against us have been taken and nailed to his cross above his head. He bears the sin for us. He has become a curse for us. And so we are no longer suffering under the curse of God's wrath for our sin. More than that, we've been credited with his righteousness. What does that mean? You know, in economic terms, that means that you're not set back to zero. People, you know, often talk about this as for, <clears throat> sorry, as an illustration of bank accounts. Okay, and so you have a particular debt that's a negative balance. And if somebody pays your debt, what happens? You go back up to zero. But that's not what happens to us. Because we're not just having our sins paid for. We're not just set back to zero. No. We are credited with Christ's righteousness. And if his righteousness is a bank account, it would be infinite. And we have that. That's what the cross means. It means that when he cries out that it is finished, there's nothing left for you to do. Nothing. You cannot work your way into a better salvation. You can't be more saved than you already are. Because it is finished. The curtain has been torn and there is now no barrier between you and God. Because Christ stands at his side, ready to intercede for you. You have been justified. And because of your justification, you have been adopted into God's family. And because of your justification, you are being sanctified, which means God is at work in you, making you into the image of Christ day by day, even though sometimes it's painful. And it means that you will be glorified because it is God that does the work. He preserves you. He works in you. And it means just looking at the saints that were raised here. We can look forward to the resurrection as well. That one day, someday, God is going to come. Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, he is going to finally and forever put to death Satan. He's going to put down all sin that will never be able to touch us anymore. And as glorified people will be given new bodies and we will never want to sin together and we will, we will be together forever in glory with our Savior. Face to face. What a glorious day. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you
We thank you for your grand plan from the beginning of time that you have elected us and that in electing us, you determined that we were going to be saved, that you would have mercy upon us. Lord, that is a glorious thing, and we ask that you drill it into our hearts that we are your people. Let us not forget it. Jesus, it is breathtaking to see you on the cross. Breathtaking to see you going head to head with Satan. And even at the point where it might seem you, you might lose, you are indeed winning. Because through the cross, you atone for our sins and you crushed Satan's head. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you dwell in our hearts. We know that that is the promise, but we ask that you be palpable in our hearts so that we always feel you and that you constantly direct our eyes to our great Savior. Amen.